All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Luke 20. Luke 20 in your Bibles, the rejected stone. Jesus is in Jerusalem during the final six days before his crucifixion. Last time we were together, Jesus rode down the Mount of Olives on a donkey's colt to the cries of his disciples saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Jesus then stopped and lamented over the city, wept over the city, crying, if only they had known the things which belonged unto their peace. And we spent some time talking about the things which belonged to their peace and lamenting, crying out for ourselves that we might know the things that belong unto our own peace. Jesus proceeded into the city, into the temple, casting out the, uh, those that sold in the temple, calling uh, them thieves, saying that, that they had made his father's house, the house of prayer, the house of worship, into a den of thieves. The Bible told us that Jesus daily taught in the temple during those days leading up to his crucifixion. And today we are going to look at one of those instances where Jesus was teaching in the temple. And we continue in Luke 20, picking up in chapter 20 this week, beginning in verses 1 and 2, where the Bible says this, And it came to pass that on one of those days, one of those days where he was in the temple teaching, as he taught the people in the temple the priest, the, and preached the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes came upon him with the elders and spake unto him, saying, Tell us, by what authority doest thou these things? Or who is he that gave thee this Authority. So they ask this question about authority. In many ways, uh, today's passage is almost an extension of that which we have been learning about in Luke chapter 19. And this makes sense because we are in context here, right? Uh, remember in verses 11 through 27, Jesus gave the parable of the certain nobleman who went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. The concept of a kingdom we mentioned at that time is deeply connected to that of authority, that the kingdom, that, that a kingdom requires several aspects, several uh, ingredients. One of them is the right to rule. One of them is a realm over which to rule. And one of them is the exercise of that right over that realm. Uh, the willing exercise. And we mentioned in that passage that what he was not going to do in this dispensation was actually recognize or exercise, excuse me, that right to rule. That he was going to get that authority and come back and then exercise that authority. But, but we mentioned this idea of the kingdom being deeply connected to that of authority. The parable's point was that the king was not going to immediately appear, but that they should be ready but one of the other parallel truths in the parable is that the nobleman was given that authority to rule. And Jesus is teaching in the temple. And this question is raised. By what authority do you teach? And the reason why this question is so pertinent is because Jesus did not come and teach in the way that made it sound like he was giving his opinion. He did not teach like it sounded like he was giving his opinion. He taught as one having authority. He taught with decisiveness. We read about this at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 verses 28 and 29 where the Bible says, and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were, were caught up in a form of intellectualism, one, one which we find pervasive, not just in our culture today, but even in our churches today, uh, where people never talk about anything in absolutes. They believe something in their heart to be true, 
But in order to sound, I don't know, humble or, or not to offend or, or just to sound intellectual, really, is, is, is the long and short of it. This is what intellectuals do. When they teach something, when they state something, they do so in a very soft, almost apologetic way. So when someone says there is no God, rather than say there absolutely is a God, they might say something to the effect of, well, I think there are many signs that there are a God in this world. And there's a, there, there's a benefit to that, right? There's a benefit to not just getting in someone's face when they disagree with you and saying no. Uh, but that benefit kind of ends where opinion ends. If I have an opinion and you have an opinion, then it is all right and good for us to talk on the terms of opinion. For me to... Uh, voice as though I'm considering your opinion, and I, I truly ought to be, and for us to pass this back and forth in a way that is not absolute, because we acknowledge the fact that we have an opinion here, and that's okay. Though I think my opinion's right, or I wouldn't have it, right? But there is a line where opinion gives way to truth, so that if somebody came up and said, I don't believe in gravity, I wouldn't say, well... That's a really interesting thought. Let's think about that. that at, at some point, that becomes condescending. At some point, that becomes patronizing. When I could just look at them and say, well, that's crazy because there is such thing, all right? So Jesus taught decisively. He taught as one having authority. And thus they felt compelled to challenge Jesus on that authority rather than simply say, we don't agree, however, they came across with this passive-aggressive intellectualism that simply compelled them to ask this question. By what authority do you do the things you do? Who gave you this authority? And Jesus has answered this question already. As a matter of fact, he's answered this question in Jerusalem during a feast, which means most likely the people that are interacting with him to one degree or another heard the answer to this question or knew exactly what Jesus' answer to this question was. And we read about this in John 5. Jesus had just healed the lame man, if you recall, at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath day. And this made the Jews very angry. We pick up in verse 16 of John 5, where the Bible says this, And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. But Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him, because he, has not, he not only had broken the Sabbath, but said also that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then answered Jesus, and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that, that himself doeth. And he will show him greater works than these, that ye may marvel. So Jesus gives, in verses 16 through 20, this statement of his relationship to the Father. Then he continues, and we'll skip to verse 31. We'll read verses 31 to 37 of John 5, where the Bible continues. And he, Jesus says, If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that bears, beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth, but I receive not testimony from man. But these things I say, that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works that I do bear witness of me, that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself, which hath sent me, hath borne witness of me, 
Ye have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. So Jesus made it clear at this time, at this feast in John 5, early on when he was in Jerusalem for a feast at the pool of Bethesda, that he had authority and that his authority was given to him by God, that God bore witness of him, that he was the son of God, that he had authority, that his ministry was approved by God. But take note of the fact that at that time, he also appealed to John the Baptist. Now, back in John 5, uh, much earlier in his ministry, John the Baptist uh, was, was much, a much more poignant, um, uh, uh, news-worthy person. He um, was, it was, it was still early. It had been soon after Jesus's um, Baptism and all of those events surrounding which and, and the controversy surrounding John the Baptist was, was uh, um, fresh at that time. And that's going to come to play here in just a few minutes. So, so keep that tucked into your head. By this, though, by John chapter 5, we can know that what these religious leaders are asking is not rooted in a legitimate desire to know anything of Christ, but rather a desire to challenge his authority. And as we've seen several times throughout the book, Jesus chose not to play their game. He's done so. He's answered their questions. Uh, this is not, not, this is disingenuous. These questions now are not genuine. They are not to actually seek answers. They are to catch him. They are to entrap him. They are to confuse others. And so he answers their question uh, with a question, which, by the way, is not, uh, that, that, that's um, oftentimes what's called a hostile witness. Um, that's not a, a um, appropriate way, if you're being cooperative, to answer a question. But Jesus answers a question with a question. And he says this in verses 3 and 4. He answered and said unto them, I will also ask you one thing and answer me. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of man? And this may be where the, the minds of, of these, these uh, elders flip back to the time that Jesus said these things after he healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. And they remember Jesus appealing to John's authority and to the Father's authority and wanting to stone him because he healed a man on the Sabbath first, but then also because he equated himself with God. And he appealed to John the Baptist, that, that, that shining light, and they were willing for a time to, to be in that light. And let's refresh our memory just a little bit more on John the Baptist and on his ministry before we move on. Uh, John's baptism. We call him John the Baptist not because he was the first Baptist. Don't... don't uh, don't confuse that. Um, and that, that gets around. That's not it. He's called John the Baptist because he was a baptizer. Literally, John the Baptizer. And he was one who baptized. And his baptism was to prepare the way for Messiah. A baptism of repentance in preparation for Messiah. A baptism where he called the Jews to align their hearts with the Old Testament. With the prophecies. With the expectation of Messiah's coming. Because John was the one, the herald, the forerunner for Messiah. To submit oneself to the baptism of John was to align with his claims that he was that prophetic voice crying in the wilderness of Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. To submit oneself to the baptism of John was to align with John's proclamation when in John he looked, when in the epistle of John, he looked at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And this brought them to the dilemma that we read about in verses 5 and 6. We read about this, the Bible says, And they reasoned with themselves, saying, If we shall say from heaven that John that John's message came from heaven, he will say, why then believe ye him not? Why don't you believe his testimony? Because he prophesied of me. 
But if we say of men, all the people will stone us, for they be persuaded that John was a prophet. So Jesus put them into a very difficult situation with this question, the proverbial rock and a hard place. If they admit that John's message is from heaven, if they acknowledge him to be a legitimate prophet, then it would be absurd for them to reject the message of Jesus because John affirmed the message of Jesus. But if they denied that John's message was from heaven, if they stated that John was therefore a false prophet, and there's no middle ground here, right? You're in or you're out. You're true or you're false. There's no middle ground biblically. They would greatly upset the people who were convinced that John was a great prophet. And whether Jesus was or not, they were convinced that John was a great prophet. And they were afraid that the people would actually stone them for calling John a false prophet. And here's why this is a legitimate dilemma for these rulers. It wouldn't be a dilemma if they cared about truth. They'd just tell the truth, right? Dilemmas like this come when a person is trying to form a narrative. We see it all the time on the news and politics. If you read any of that stuff, you shouldn't. It'll give you ulcers. But if you do, you see it all the time. That people get into these dilemmas when someone asks them a question and the answer is very obvious, but they can't give the answer because it doesn't fit their narrative. It doesn't fit their rendition of what they call truth, which is not truth at all. And because it doesn't fit their narrative, they have, to, they, they, they have to worm around it. And some people are very quick at this and you don't even see it, but you say, wow, that was really, uh, that was really some amazing skill, some gymnastic skill there of bending around the answer. And other people, they just get caught up for a moment in the um, 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 because they, they're, they're dealing with this rock in a hard place and they're trying to find a way to navigate around the truth so that they can prop up their narrative. So these, these elders, these Pharisees, these scribes, they were not comfortable stating the truth because the truth would go against their narrative. And so this question really put them into a bind. So they fell back upon the old default, the good old scapegoat of the bankrupt intellectual. Verse 7. And they answered that they could not tell whence it was. We can't tell you. We don't know. Well, of course they did. They knew the truth, but the truth didn't serve their narrative. They knew what they wanted to say. They wanted to deny his prophetic office, but that denial didn't serve the best interests of their message, of their attempt to cause the people to be diverted from Jesus' message to their message. And because of that, they, they play this, this um, objective, well, we don't know. We can't tell. We're still, the jury's still out on that. We're looking for all of the marks as if they're being really objective and careful and trying to wait and see and follow the evidence and, and such when in fact they were just dodging the question. In some ways this reminds me of my children. Not just my children, children in general. It's not just my children. There's a little bit of a different perspective here, but have you ever had one of those instances where you ask a child a question and they tell you they know the answer? And then you say, okay, then what's the answer? And they look at you and they say, well, I'm not going to tell you, right? So Johnny, what's a dolphin? Do you know what a dolphin is? And Johnny says, of course I know what a dolphin is. And you look at Johnny and say, okay, then Johnny, tell me what a dolphin is. And he looks at you and he stops and he says, well, I know, but I'm not going to tell you, right? What's Johnny doing there? He's trying to preserve his pride of making you think, even though you don't think, that he actually knows what a dolphin is. 
but that he reserves the right to not tell you what a dolphin is if you don't know what a dolphin is. And it's not just children that do this, is it? Oh, we've come across perhaps friends, uh, adult friends or, or, or friends uh, of our adolescents here who, who will pretend like they know something. And then when you question them on it, they'll look at you and they'll say, well, if you're not smart enough to understand what I've told you, then I, you're not worth my time. Or they'll look at you and say, well, if you're not going to look it up for yourself and, and do the study, I don't see why I should have to be your teacher. Generally speaking, when that comes into the conversation, what that means is that they have no clue what they're talking about. And their scapegoat is that they know you don't have a clue what you're talking about either. Or they're going to pretend like you don't have a clue what you're talking about. When they're actually babbling incoherently, they're going to pretend like the only reason why you can't understand them is because you're just not smart enough. When in fact, they're actually just babbling incoherently. All of these things, they happen all the time. And that's kind of the idea. It's not quite the same idea here, but it's a very similar idea. This was the spirit of their response. They're playing childish games with Jesus. And so Jesus responds in turn. He says in verse 8, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. If you won't answer my question, then I'm not going to answer your question. Now, Jesus did not say this with the intention of being petty. Sometimes that's a, that's a petty way to do things, right? You ask your, your child a question and they ask you a question and, and it's as if you're in a stalemate. I'm not going to answer your question, so you're not going to answer my question type deal. And it can get very, very petty. But, but this isn't a petty thing because Jesus could have given them the answer. He's given them the answer before. Can I tell you why I believe he didn't give the answer? First off, as we've talked about before, Jesus has finished playing games with them. They have rejected the answer, and Jesus is not in the business of giving revelation. God is not in the business of giving revelation to people who have already rejected it. Uh, whether whether it's, it's revelation through His Holy Spirit or through His Word, when people reject the revelation of God, one of the judgments, one of the consequences of that rejection is darkness, that God ceases to persist in giving you revelation because uh, you, you have already rejected it. Why should God continue to press you for something that you've already rejected. And there's a possibility there, but, but I really do believe that the biggest reason is, and it's something that we're going to talk about more over the next couple of weeks, something we've talked about uh, just briefly even in our morning series on interpretation, is that Jesus did not want the people who were listening to get confused. What the Pharisees, scribes, elders were attempting to do was to muddy the waters, to confuse Christ's authority. Primarily, I mean, they've already rejected him, right? But this is a way by which they can cause the people who are listening to be confused and perhaps have a few of them reject him. This is a part of it, at least. And Jesus doesn't want that. So instead of playing the game, he reverses the game on them. Instead of just ending with telling them something that's going to make the crowd perhaps upset, Jesus saying he has the authority because the Father gave it to him. And this is going to give the, the elders a, a reason to call him a heretic, which is going to distract from Jesus' teaching. And in, so, so instead of doing that, or instead of just saying, I'm not going to tell you flat out, which would almost seem as though he didn't know or was dodging things, he plays the game. He fires back. And so it leaves the scribes and the Pharisees in the place of standing there with nothing to give rather than Jesus. Jesus says, I would give you an answer, but you're not going to give me one. And so Jesus was willing to give an answer. But at this point, he basically forces uh, the scribes and the Pharisees and the elders to withdraw their question. Lest they get into more trouble on the other end. Keep this context in mind now as we read a parable. 
The parable begins in verse 9. We'll read verses 9 and 10. The Bible says this. Then began he, that would be Jesus, to speak to the people this parable. A certain man planted a vineyard and let it forth to husbandmen and went into a far country for a long time. And at the season he sent a servant to the husbandmen that they should give him of the fruit of the vineyard. But the husbandmen beat him and sent him away empty. Jesus speaks this parable The text tells us, not directly to the chief priests, scribes, and elders, but more generally to the people that were there. Uh, The chief priests, their mouths are shut now, and Jesus is going to look at the people, but speak to and in reference of these these, uh, religious leaders. And we're introduced here to a certain man, a certain man who planted a vineyard. The man thus owned the land, had the resources to plant it, the capabilities to manage it. So he plants it, he's managing it, and then he lets it out to husbandmen, the Bible says, while he goes off into a far country for a long time. Now there is in this a similarity to the parable that we spoke about just a few moments ago in Luke 19, the parable that Jesus spoke in Jericho about the certain nobleman who went into the far country to receive for himself a kingdom. However, let us remember that parables are stories. Parables are stories that are meant to teach a single point. That They use supporting facts loosely. We should not try to conflate the parables as if the certain nobleman that went into the far country to receive a kingdom is in fact the same person who let out his vineyard. Now in this case we might be able to make those parallels because in both cases the parallel is Jesus going away for a time However, in this case, the the servants will be the prophets, and so it doesn't mesh up properly, and we just don't, we we don't do that, right? It's not something that we should be comfortable with. It's not something that, that, that merges. It's not something that makes sense. It's not something that we ought to do here. They're two entirely different stories, entirely different contexts, teaching in two entirely different points, and they don't need to, to meet together. So let's just remember that. So this owner goes away and effectively he leases this land out to a group of men who agree to attend the vineyard in his absence to continue to take care of it while he is gone. This is not an uncommon thing in various places of the world in various contexts of life. You might see this in the rental world where a person has several properties but he doesn't necessarily live near those properties. So he moves away and he hires a manager who is local to manage the properties for him. Perhaps he even allows the manager to live in one of those properties, whatever it might be, but to manage those properties locally to, to do the fixing or, or um, to, to maintain and all of those different things since he is in a far country, since he is, is, is a distance away. Now, as this parable plays out, the man in the season sends a servant to the husbandman to gather the fruit of the vineyard. This is his vineyard. He has the right to the fruit of that vineyard, to whatever he didn't agree with the husbandman as far as what what was theirs. Uh, He has his, his right. He owns it. It's, It's his. So he sends a servant to collect that which is his. And the Bible says these husbandmen beat the servant of the the Lord and sent him away empty. This they do no doubt to seek to tell this certain man who owned the vineyard that they were staking a claim on it. You're not here. You didn't do any work. We're doing the work. We're staking a claim to the fruit of this vineyard. It's not just. It's not right. It's not theirs. It's not part of the agreement. But this is what they're doing. We continue. Verses 11 to 13. 
And again, he sent another servant and they beat him also and entreated him shamefully and sent him away. And again, he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then said the Lord of the vineyard, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. It may be that they will reverence him when they see him. So the certain man sends another servant. They beat and shame him and they send him away. And the certain man finally sends a third servant. They wound him. They cast him out. And the Lord is now thinking about how it is that he is going to go about getting that which is his out of this vineyard. How is he going to cause these husbandmen to regard his authority? That's really what this comes down to. Is these first three servants, they said, your authority is no good here. They beat them and sent them back sent them packing, your authority is no good here. The the Lord says, now how can I get them to regard my authority? He says, maybe if I send the very extension of my own authority, my heir, the one who uh, is as much an owner of this vineyard as myself because he will have it when I'm dead. He's an extension of my very authority. These servants, they represented my authority. My son, he's an extension of my authority. I'll send him. They'll regard him. They must regard him. At that point, they'll look and they'll say, oh, the son's here. The jig is up. Our authority uh, is, is under his. We, we're in trouble. So he sends his son. We read in verses 14 and 16. But when the husbandmen saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. What therefore shall the Lord do? Lord of the vineyard, excuse me, do unto them. He shall come and destroy these husbandmen. He shall give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, God forbid. So the husbandmen, they see the son. And rather than say the game's up, the son is here now, the authority is here, they instead reason within themselves, if we kill the heir, then the vineyard can be ours. This is nonsensical. There's no reality in which by killing the heir, they're going to get it unless they stage a coup and kill everyone and just take it by force and there's no law enforcement there to stop it. So they kill the son. Jesus then asks, what will the Lord of the vineyard do to those husbandmen? And he immediately answers, he will destroy them and he'll give the vineyard to others. Now this parable has a somewhat startling effect upon the listeners. They respond by saying, God forbid. That phrase, God forbid, is a very loose translation whenever you see it in our King James Bibles. The Greek phrase, meganoita, literally means may it never be. It's the strongest negative exclamation we have in our Bibles. The reason why the King James translators did it as they did is because meganoita is an idiom. May it never be. It it, it was identified as an idiom. And idioms are not meant to be translated literally. And (laughs) we can translate it literally, but the idea of the idiom is generally best served with another idiom. The idiom of one language is best served through the idiom of another language. And so in this case, the King James translator said, what is the strongest idiom we have for forbidding? And that idiom is God forbid in 1611. 1769. And so they used God forbid as a means by which to parallel these idioms. And while it is certainly not a exact translation by any means, God uh, and forbid, neither word is in, the, is in this, this text here. The idea is valid. And I'm never, I, I never really like it 
when we see our King James translators stray from that which is literal. Uh, But in this case, that is the reason why they did it. So what they were saying is quite literally, may never such an evil, awful, horrible thing ever happen. That's how the people responded. What a horrible thing. God forbid that this should ever actually happen. Somewhat ironically, they say this because in a few days they will watch the King of Glory die on the cross and receive this very fate that Jesus is speaking of. Now this pause in the narrative where the people say, God forbid, tells us that the parable is over. But Jesus is about to speak up again. And his words this time will help us understand the single point of the parable because all parables focus on a single point when they're given. Verses 17 and 18. And he, Jesus, beheld them and said, What is this then that is written? The stone which the builders rejected the same has become the head of the corner? Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. From Jesus' statement here, we discern that the point of the parable is about the fate of those who rejected the authority of the master. Those who reject the authority of the master, there is a fate to them. And we know that that's the point of the parable. The context lends itself to that. Jesus' teaching afterwards lends itself to that. This is the point of the parable. So for Jesus' parable to focus in on his father's authority given to the son and its rejection among the nation, uh, this is not surprising at all to us. In this particular parable, we can draw many parallels, can't we? Many parallels. The servants of the Lord who were sent would be the prophets who time and again had been beaten and slain for the testimony of God's words. And by the way, that's why we can't directly parallel it to the nobleman going away because the nobleman going away is a picture of Christ leaving and then coming again with authority for his church. But in this, we have the prophets during this time of absence. Even though the Lord was speaking, it was a different dispensation, right? So the parallels are not there. So the servants of the Lord, so, so in other words, the, the, the Lord leaving doesn't really matter here. The point is the servants being sent, uh, that's the prophets, and then the son being sent, of course, Jesus Christ, and then the, the, the certain man is God the Father. The husbandmen we would liken to national Israel as represented by Israel's leadership who rejected the prophets. It wasn't just the leaders that rejected the prophets. It was all Israel that rejected the prophets, that slayed the prophets, that killed the prophets. And we've talked about this many times in the book of Luke so much that Jesus even tongue-in-cheek at one point said that he needs to come to Jerusalem because that's where the prophets die, right? Um, He had a sense of humor. Morbid, sort of, though it might be. The vineyard then, if if the husbandman was Israel, and particularly, particularly the leaders in Israel, then the vineyard we might liken to God's elected purpose that they were to be rightly related to God so that they could show the world how to be rightly related to God, God would send the prophets looking for the fruit of that vineyard, looking for the fruit of God's election. I've elected you, and I want my fruit. And Israel failed to give God his fruit. And instead they said, if we kill the servants, and we beat the servants, and we maim the servants of God, if we, in rejection to God's authority, then maybe at some point we'll get to... Take over. We can have the kingdom. We can have the authority. We can have our own election. We can show the world what it's like to be us, as it were. And so finally, when Israel fails at their elected purpose, God sends his son with a final cry. 
toward that elective purpose, a final offer of the kingdom. And they finally, they look and they say, aha, if we kill him, then it will be ours. And so they reject the son. They reject the authority of the father by rejecting the son, by killing the son. And all of this leads to the destruction of the husbandmen and the elected purpose of God to be rightly related to him that he might show the world how to be rightly related to him is thus given to the church. Remember, election has nothing to do with salvation, has everything to do with purpose all throughout the scriptures. Now, all of these parallels are fine and good. It's all very good. But remember, the purpose, the purpose to this parable, the one thing we're to draw from it specifically is the idea of the rejection of authority. And so Jesus uses this quotation of the Old Testament that the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner and states, whosoever shall fall on the stone shall be broken, but whosoever the stone shall fall upon will be ground to powder. The picture here is a, a group of builders laying the foundation for a building and God had a building which he was going to build a group, an elect group and precious to reflect himself to the world as we've talked about wherein Jesus himself was the cornerstone. In building, the cornerstone is the stone by which the whole foundation is judged. If the cornerstone is perfectly square, then we can trust the foundation on either side to extend square as long as each stone is properly related to the cornerstone. If the cornerstone is not perfectly square, the foundation will have problems, and so the whole building will have problems. Thus, the cornerstone is designed to be the template by which each other stone is cut and each other stone is measured. And that is what Jesus is to God's purpose, to God's election. Jesus is the cannon. He's the measuring stick. He is the cornerstone by which every other stone is to be laid and is to be measured. Jesus is the template by which every righteous man is cut. Are you a righteous man? How much do you reflect Christ? Jesus is the template of the just who live by faith. Are you just? How much do you reflect Christ? Israel were chosen to be the builders of God's elected assembly. And when God sent his son to be the cornerstone of this assembly, they rejected him in favor of their own self-righteousness. Jesus quotes here, as I mentioned, directly in the Old Testament from Psalm 118, verses 19 to 23. The Bible says, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them. And I will praise the Lord, this gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. I will praise thee, for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. The psalmist envisioned the day when the Lord would open the gates of righteousness and salvation. But that stone upon which these blessings would be built, he also envisioned in this prophecy the day in which that stone would be rejected by the builders. What an interesting prophecy there in Psalm 118 of the gates being opened for righteousness but the stone being refused by the builders. Isaiah 2 promised that the cornerstone would come in whom, if any man believed, he would not be ashamed. Isaiah 28, 16, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. 
He that believeth shall not make haste. Paul quotes this verse in Romans chapter 9, verse 33, when he's speaking about Israel and national Israel's yet purpose in God's election. He would say, as it is written, Behold, I lay in Sion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. That's a quote there of the Isaiah 28, 16 verse. Paul translates the cornerstone here into a stumbling stone, linking very clearly the same thing that Jesus links here in Luke, that the cornerstone and the stumbling stone are one stone, that the cornerstone becomes the stumbling stone to the builders of the foundation. But he also makes it so clear that whosoever would believe on that stone would not be ashamed. Yet, those who reject the chief corner, which in a matter of days the nation will do in Luke 20, to them Jesus says, Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken, but whomsoever, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Jesus speaks of this rejection in, in two parts. The first being stumbling at the stone. They would be ashamed. They would be broken. No man will successfully find God who stumbles over the stumbling stone. We talked about that this morning in our message on interpretation, that Jesus Christ is the end of every road of divine revelation. If divine revelation exists, then the end of that divine revelation, according to the Bible, is always Christ. All roads don't lead to heaven. All roads don't lead to God. But all roads of divine revelation lead to Christ. Christ is the end of the road of faith in God every single time. It must be Christ. Nothing outside of Christ can get you to heaven. The second element of this, though, is destruction. So the first part is to stumble. A person stumbles, they can get back up. But there comes a point, the Bible says, when those who stumble, if they remain down, if they continue to persist in their rejection, will be destroyed. Like the husbandmen who killed the son, the stone will one day, instead of the unbelievers falling over the stone, there's coming a day where that stone will fall upon the unbeliever, will crush him to powder, and he will be no more. He will be separated from God forever. Now everything that we know about Jesus' statement indicates that his words will go completely unappreciated and unheeded by the listeners, right? We would expect that because everything that Jesus has said has gone unheeded, not by everyone, obviously, but by particularly the leaders there in Israel. And so we find in verse 19, And the chief priests and the scribes the same hour sought to lay hands on him, and they feared the people, for they perceived that he had spoken this parable against them. They didn't quite understand the parable. This was by Jesus' design. Jesus made it clear throughout the, uh, the, the Gospels that uh, the reason why he gave parables was to cause those who believed to understand and those who did not believe to remain in darkness. But they had enough sense to know that what he was saying was, was being said against them. And from that hour on, they began to look for ways to bring Jesus down. But they didn't want to do it openly because many of the people loved and followed Jesus. And they didn't want to cause that kind of a controversy. They didn't want the whole thing to become a big problem. And they certainly didn't want to get caught up in the mess, right? Uh, they did not want to get caught up in Jesus' destruction. It was not a kamikaze mission that they were looking for here. They were looking for a means by which to destroy him while keeping their hands pristine and clean, proverbially 
certainly not spiritually. Their response then was exactly what we would expect. The exact opposite of what it should have been, however. They missed the warning. They understood it only instead as an offense. They understood it as an offense. They were offended by that which Jesus said, by the rebuke of Jesus. So it is that Jesus is about to be slain. He's already been hated and rejected by the leadership in Jerusalem. But for the past several weeks now, we have been exploring Jesus' authority and his right to rule. Now, as those who know the gospel well, this does not pose a challenge to our thinking. It's natural for us to recognize Jesus' resurrection, his future victory, and so to fully understand Jesus' words about coming again, about waiting for his authority and all that, all that makes sense to us. It does not trouble us. But imagine being in that day and hearing these words and not knowing what they meant. That the one who is Messiah, the anticipation surrounding his authority, all of those who had placed the palm leaves down and their their garments down and said, Hosanna, blessed be he that cometh in the name of the Lord, are trying to process all of these parables and all of these teachings that Jesus is giving about delayed authority, about coming again. And they're confused, and they'll be more confused. But these things were intended to help the disciples get through those dark and confusing days to the other side when the Spirit would make all things plain. Let's apply today. These final chapters of Luke have been big on big ideas. We've been talking heavy, higher concepts, concepts of faith, belief, of yielding, as we spoke of the last several weeks, really, and, and many times in the last few chapters of Luke, about giving in, dedicating yourself, giving your all, not holding anything back. This evening, I'd like for us to get down into the nitty-gritty of our Christian lives for a bit. Jesus gave these leaders a parable that was intended, if they had the faith to receive it, to help them get right. It was a rebuke. It was a rebuke that was intended to correct them. By most measures, Jesus was finished attempting to reach out to these leaders, but he still rebuked them, giving them an opportunity to repent. They did not take it as such. Instead, they got angry. And this response of the leaders to Jesus' rebuke is about as human as it gets. And seeing that you're a human, and I'm a human, just like those scribes, Pharisees, and elders were, are humans, were humans, are humans, let me ask you the same question that I would ask of them. Let me give you the same consideration that I considered of them as I studied this week. And the question is this. How do you respond to rebuke? The chief priests and scribes responded to the rebuke with anger. When someone told them they were doing something wrong, that they were in the wrong, instead of searching their own heart to know if it were true, then either changing or, or contending with the rebuke in a way that would be respectful, they instead chose simply to utterly destroy the messenger. And this is a sign of two things. First, it's a sign that they felt conviction and knew full well that they were in the wrong. When a person gets angry at rebuke, it's a sign that there's conviction, that they're angry because they know they're in the wrong. Second, it's a sign of a man who has yielded wisdom for the sake of passion, for the sake of emotion, for self-validation. A man who's angry because he looks bad, angry because his pride has been chinked, angry because 
you have questioned him. Even if he does not agree with you in your rebuke, how dare you rebuke me? How dare you rebuke me in front of so-and-so? How dare you make me look bad in front of so-and-so? How dare you fill in the blank? And I want to ask you this evening, how do you respond when someone rebukes you? You know, rebuke can come in many, many forms, can't it? Maybe it's a parent rebuking a child who's done something wrong. Or a husband rebuking a wife. Or a boss rebuking an employee. Or the civil government rebuking a citizen. Whatever form rebuke takes, nobody likes rebuke. Nobody likes to be told they're wrong. Nobody likes to, to have somebody come up to them, especially if they don't know them, trust them, or respect them, and tell them that they're doing something wrong. Maybe it's a little sibling that's rebuking an older sibling. And boy, that's hard, older siblings, isn't it? Or even the other way around. Older sibling rebuking the younger. And younger sibling says, you're not mom and dad. Even though the younger sibling knows that what older sibling said is exactly right. Let's give some examples of this. Because it's a very common tendency in our heart when we're rebuked to deflect the object of the rebuke and instead focus our anger upon the person who rebuked us. So you get rebuked by your parents for not having your room cleaned, and you ask uh, immediately, what about my sister? What about my brother? What about their room? You haven't looked at their room yet. And so when they ask you, is your room clean? Or they rebuke you for your room not being clean. Instead of acknowledging that you've done wrong, because you have. You deflect it. But look at so-and-so. But what about so-and-so? Or maybe back on them. But what about your room? But see, here's the thing. What does it matter if anyone else's room is clean? What does any of that have to do with what you were asked to do? So maybe there is a double standard in your home that doesn't change the fact that you were asked to do something and you disobeyed. You will never be held accountable for what other people do and don't do by God, but you will be held accountable for what you do. And the reason why we deflect blame on others or deflect uh, the, the attention to others is because we want to deflect from our own guilt. Your attempt to find a double standard or to turn things against your parents is little more than a way to distract your heart and maybe theirs, if anything is said out loud or if, uh, if they're susceptible to that, from the reality of your wrong actions. You did wrong and you're trying to deflect it by looking at someone else. So your husband rebukes you for not having done what he asked you to do. And immediately you think, well, you're not super husband either. You didn't do this. You didn't do that. But here's the thing. What does any of that have to do with you being a submissive wife? What does any of that have to do with you? Maybe your husband has bigger problems than you do. Quite possible. But that doesn't disqualify him from stating that you did something wrong if you indeed did something wrong. Nor does it disqualify him from having the authority to state it. Your attempt to find double standards or to turn things against your husband is little more than a way to distract from the reality that you did wrong. So your boss gets on you again and you can point the finger at every other employee who is doing a worse job than you in a hundred ways. And you use these offenses to be angry at him, to wish him ill, or to turn uh, your, your, your words against him among others or even among him or uh, toward him. But here's the thing. What does any other employee's actions, what their consequences or lack thereof have to do with you? Your wrong actions. 
If you did wrong, no matter what others are doing, you have a problem, don't you? You did wrong. This is an attempt of our sinful hearts to distract us or distract others from the conviction that will lead us to getting things right or doing things better. How do you respond when you're rebuked? Let's see what the Bible has to say about it. Proverbs chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. The Bible says, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Are you a scorner or a wise man? Wise woman this, this evening. When you're rebuked, does it cause you to be angry at the person who rebuked you? Or does it cause you to become a better you? To appreciate that person who rebuked you, maybe not because you appreciate them, but because they pointed out something that you need to change to make you better. You know, even oftentimes your enemies who will rebuke you to try to make you angry, who will rebuke you to try to bring you down a peg, can become some of your greatest assets to help you become a better you. And I'm not trying to say that in your best life now kind of a way. I'm trying to say it, but, but this is a practical thing. This is not just spiritual. I'm not just talking about rebuking sin and becoming a better Christian. Uh, this happens in the workplace. This happens in sports. This happens all the time that we need people critical of us to help us get better. And the wise person will handle that rebuke properly. The unwise, the scorner, hates rebuke and hates those that rebuke them. When you're taught do you get wiser or do you say, how dare you try to teach me anything? I have a master's degree. You didn't even graduate college. How dare you? Well, if what they're saying is true, who cares? Proverbs 13.1 A wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. Put any person in there. A wise son hears his father's instructions. A wise daughter hears his father's instructions. A wise employee hears his employer's instructions. A wise Christian hears his pastor's instructions. A wise citizen hears his government's instructions. But here's the thing. The scorner doesn't hear rebuke. They just get angry. All they hear is insults. A rebuke is not necessarily an insult. In fact, a rebuke is often love, isn't it? We'll talk about that more in a moment. But a scorner doesn't hear that. All they hear is insults. All they hear is offenses. Rebuke is a means by which to find out who your enemies are. Rebuke is a means by which to compare myself to others, to determine how I'm better than them. That's what a scorner hears. And if any of this sounds familiar to the way you act around those who would seek to rebuke or instruct you, then you have some work to do in your own heart. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why people rebuke. Some people do so just to find fault. And that is a frustrating thing. But again, if the faults are valid, then even if their motives are wrong, does it matter? Now, if they do this, though, I mean, that's a, that's a fault in its own right, and, and they should be rebuked themselves. Those people are a drain upon emotions, a drain upon the spirit. I hope you don't have to deal with people like that often. But we find an interesting phrase in 1 Corinthians 13 about charity. 1 Corinthians 13.5 tells us this. Charity doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. The Bible says that charity thinks no evil. In other words, one of the ways that we show love to others is that we assume their good intentions. That when someone rebukes us, unless we have a reason to believe otherwise... 
We assume that they're doing it with every good intention, doing it for your benefit, doing it to make you better. This is not an easy thing to do, but this is the loving thing to do. That you assume when someone rebukes you that they're simply trying to make you better and, and by playing out that assumption, you don't assume the negative. You don't get angry at them. In fact, you, you, you appreciate them instead. And this is, ought to be especially true if, if the rebuke is valid, obvious, true. So it is that the Bible tells us in Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, open rebuke is better than secret love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Assume that the person is correcting you because he is your friend and he wants to make you better. And maybe that isn't his intent, but if his rebuke makes you better anyway, well, that's great for you. Our flesh loves people who will flatter us all day. But the spiritual part of us should crave open rebuke far more than secret love. The spiritual part of us should desire the faithful wounds of a friend over the kisses of the enemy. Far better to have someone look you in the eye and tell you where you are wrong than to have them smile in your face and watch you do the same wrong over and over and over and over again without ever trying to help you. And if you're one who feels compelled to be on the rebuking end, if you're one who rebukes, remember, when we rebuke in love, this is a very positive thing. If you're one who feels the need, if, if you love someone, let me just put it this way, if you love someone, then, then if there's something wrong, you need to rebuke them. Proverbs 28.23 says this, however, He that rebuketh a man afterwards shall find more favor than he that flattereth with the tongue. When you love someone enough to correct them, you are doing what is best for them. Love is not a feeling. We know that. Love is a choice. And love is not about flowery words and making someone feel good about themselves. Love is about helping a person become better. A better believer, a better father, a better friend, a better fill-in-the-blank. And if you're wise, even if in the moment they are not happy to have been rebuked, if they are wise, excuse me, you might just find them become much closer to you. You might become much more dear to them because you love them enough to tell them the truth. It doesn't always work this way, but by God's grace, it's how it's supposed to go. This evening, we studied a passage where Jesus rebuked the chief priests and scribes for their rejection of his authority. Their response was one of anger and hostility. In fact, it set in motion their deep desire to destroy him, which we'll see play out over the next several chapters. My question to you is, is that how your heart responds to rebuke? Have you had some rebuke lately that has hardened you rather than made you better? The Bible says this is a mark of a scorner, not a wise man. May I encourage each of us this evening to be the wise man.